We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Ray Williams, who is a philosopher and a detransitioner. And in this conversation, we talk about his autogynephilia, or desire to realize himself erotically as a woman, and how that was a driver in his transition, and how regulating himself via spirituality and a transcendent ethic has helped him to accept himself as a man and as a husband and to proceed along the path of embracing the body that he was given. Ray's a wonderful thinker and you can find his work down there in the description. I heavily suggest you check out at least his Twitter, if nothing else. And without further ado, here is Ray Williams. Things seem to be on the upward trajectory. Good. Um, so. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. Speaking about the upward trajectory, what's your life been like? Um, <laughs> you want the, uh, the 10,000 foot picture or more <laughs> compressed in the past year? Like I've kind of been going through a lot of a lot of changes um, yeah. Yeah. lately, and you know, kind of some would say in rapid, rapid iteration of, of yeah. worldview reconfiguration. But how old are you? Uh, About I'm th- 36. Oh wow! Coming okay. up, cu- coming up on 37. So yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's been um, many twists and turns <laughs> along along the way. I feel like I've lived many different lives of. Um, various kinds and we can definitely get into that particularly with the gender stuff um that's probably been the most salient um you know switch of trajectory and trends in terms of my uh life um what was when did gender first become an idea for you or a thought or a focus of your attention it, 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 it sort of depends on what we mean by gender but um i def i so i had and i still suffer from autogynephilia so i'm sure you're aware of that and that was the impetus of where all my gender stuff comes from you know based on my research i think it's a legit theory you know it definitely makes sense of of my life and and that started when i was um you know, very young. So pre-puberty, I remember, you know, having, you know, daydreams and some fantasies around sort of like cross-gender fantasy. And I, you know, had a, um, like this obsessive interest with women's clothing. Um, so that, that, that's like the, the, you know, there's different types of AGP. Some are more and anatomic mine um, has always been about clothing so that was sort huh. of the um i guess so to call what phil illy calls sartorial agp um yeah so that was you know so what was I the was uh, the meaning or the power or like the feeling of 
women's clothes? Was it liberatory? Was it creative? Was it uh, quickening? Um, so when, when I was really little, I think it was primarily sensation based. So I always had an issue with scratchy fabrics when I was young. So I didn't like, you know, the tag on the back of my shirt. I was always picky about, you know, wearing t-shirts with like scratchy textures. Like I always wanted my clothing to have a certain texture. And I think women's clothing just it had a certain, like, it, it's very like a physical sensation of just, and, um, and the type of clothing that sort of kicked it all off in my head. Um, as far as like, the, the, it was like very fetishistic in the sense of being, you know, oriented with regards to one particular type of clothing in the beginning, which was, you know, hosiery. That was sort of the thing that really my mind sort of latched onto in this sort of like classical fetishistic conception of like having a, you know, a paraphilic orientation towards yeah. a specific object, which but, in this case was hosiery. But if you, if you go back to like Robin Hood times, at least Robin Hood men in tights, like <laughs> that wasn't necessarily a female article of clothing. It, it is now. If, if you think you, if you were in a different cultural climate, uh, would the hosiery decoupled from femininity or being restricted to female would you have a different relationship to it? Or do you think like, very, because it was very likely, I think, I think the taboo aspect, the fact that that was an article of clothing that only women wore, because I think I can't remember if it was like Michael Bailey or Ray Blanchard said this, but if there was like a society where the only difference between men and women is that men wore four buttons on their coat and women wore five buttons, the AGPs would want to wear that fifth button. Huh. So it's really about the taboo associated with, you know, these binary limitations of like, this is like stuff that only women wear. Cause I mean, it, it it's not, it, I think it would have been unlikely to develop in regards to like, jeans for example because jeans are sort of like a unisex clothing in our modern society but you know i don't know maybe like two, 200 years ago it would be petticoats or something because that's like a very particular yeah <laughs> you know I, I think it has to be sort of tied into social taboo to sort of like unlock but i don't know this is all very speculative in my yeah. mind but um well taboo I just wonder if, if there's something about shame, uh, like the intensification aspect of shame in or with regard to sexuality. Uh, if it wasn't a taboo, like would it have the charge? Is, is, it, is taboo like linked to feeling shameful, secret? And then how I did you how so. did you develop or how did you how did you deal and cope with? that feeling of intense shame or taboo? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, there was definitely was an element of shame. I, I, I remember feeling deep shame, feeling guilt. You know, I was, it was very secretive. And I think this is a thematic motif of many people who cross-dress, um, particularly, you know, like the AGPs, like it's sort of like it's always a secretive thing. It's sort of done in the privacy of, you know, your own, you know, 
private life. You kind of, you know, you don't tell anyone because you kind of have a, a an an intuition that this is wrong in some specs. Like it's sort of like, um, you know, that, you know, it's just like a message. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a traditional Christian household where that was, um, you know, the, the, the message and we can get into it later in regards to, you know, I, I ended up rejecting that Christian, um, belief system, but, you know, recently I've returned to it in a interesting twist that connects to AGP. But at, at the time it was definitely like, you know, feelings of shame and that shame led to a kind of, you know, it led to eventually like this, um, uh, I think it's like a um, binging, purging cycle, which is very common with um, AGP, where you sort of like go through this indulging phase and then you feel a lot of shame and then you sort of like throw it away and like swear you'll never do it again. And then you like struggle with the, you know, the temptation again and you sort of like go through these, these like cycles um, and then sort of eventually the, the frequency between the cycles sort of shortens and to the point where you just kind of like give in at which point the ultimate giving in is like transition itself, which is like what I ended up doing when I was 28 years old was, okay. you know, at, at that point I had recently gotten um, divorced. And so I had no family, no responsibilities. I was kind of in grad school. It was, it was kind of like a open-ended um, world to, uh, you know, um, satisfy this, you know, itch. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also there's, there's like a cultural zeitgeist factor in terms of, uh, you know, it's like 2015 trans tipping point and, um, you know, it's like Laverne Cox was on time magazine. Caitlin Jenner was like on the air, um, and doing these interviews and, you know, so it was sort of like this, this zeitgeist of like, oh, well, like I'm struggling with these things. Maybe I'm not a crustious or maybe I'm like a, like a trans woman. And so that identity, I kind of latched on to that identity because it was the social mechanism through which I could publicly legitimize these desires and live a, you know, quote unquote, respectable identity that is not just like tolerated, but positively celebrated by society. Yeah. There's a, I just wonder about the convolutions. If, if shame is the intensification of the, of the pattern of obsession of, with regard to the paraphilia, let's just use those terms for the time being. And then you embrace that and you come out with that identity, then where does the shame go? And are you still compelled in the same way? Or is it the hope that by becoming this, by fulfilling this desire, like you'll find harmony, peace, resolution, uh, culmination of like this satisfaction, gratification, then you can let it go. Maybe you're free. It's free. So this is a common thing that, uh, um, transgender activists who are critical of the autogynophilia theory say is like, well, once you transition, like, you know, all this sort of fetishistic shame goes away. You sort of live your authentic life. And so it can't really be 
like a fetish. It can't really be a paraphilia because once you live your authentic truth, then like, you know, the, the shame aspect goes away. The like sexual component goes away. The sort of eroticization of it goes away. But I think part of that eroticization aspect comes from the fact that it is sort of done only in, you know, these certain context and then once you sort of um as they say in the community go full-time you normalize it and you're sort of wearing um you're, you're doing this all the time it sort of sort of habituates your mind to the novelty because i think it's not just shame and it's not just the paraphilia it's the fact that it's a novel stimulus I think yeah. is the key aspect. So it's the combination of taboo and novelty that drives the fetishization. And so once you remove the novelty aspect, cause you're doing it all the time, it sort of diminishes the taboo aspect and it like kind of removes some of the fetishization component. But I think it just sort of like, um, yeah. So I think it's part of it, but I don't, I obviously don't think that falsifies like the theory of AGP, which I think is more about, what are the origins of this as opposed to like yeah. describing the full lifespan of like the, um, you know, the indulgence, if that makes sense. Yeah. There is a, uh, there's a quite famous YouTuber called philosophy tube who, yes, I'm aware. <laughs> befriended Natalie Wood, part of this, uh, uh this group of, collectivist group of, uh, well, this loose association people called bread tube. Um, and Abigail Thorne wasn't always Abigail Thorne, but they transitioned and a clip of them surfaced a few weeks ago of them saying that this year, yeah, it was, it was on the January 1st or whatever. There was a tweet about how this is the year where transphobia is going to be punished we're oh, not yeah. going to allow yeah. we're going to we're going we're coming after your jobs if you're in media entertainment or education or anything else you know but it was really uh interesting that they chose the, those three things because that's what they think is the most important thing in the world is this information anyways uh and then i i, I kind of just like bagged on them a little bit or like performed a little bit of pushback on twitter and they blocked me like they would block my puberty if they had the chance. And uh, and then I, I looked a little bit more into them and I saw them at this, or somebody made this clip of them at this rally, like like just, you know, like doing this trans rights activism. And then they just overlaid, whoever did this, overlaid like this Hitlerian speech to it. And it was just the same kind of emphatic, power-hungry, domineering, totalitizing, tyrannical modality. And I'm wondering, this is the question, I'm wondering if trans rights activism is a way to take that shame that was fueling it and like put it into uh, it's still an intensification. I'm right. I'm oppressed. I'm fighting for my rights. You know, it's now it's not enough to just like it doesn't doesn't normalize it coming out. Like uh, if if there was that shame aspect that was an intensification of the sexual urge and impetus. And if that is, um, if, if going public takes away that shame, then does one find themselves, is it, could it be the case? Was it the case for you that activism, trans rights activism was another way of intensifying 
is it kind of swapped it out like that shame now becomes outrage or something like that yeah um I, I think you're getting at something that's important but i would say it's not necessarily related to the the shame of the the fetish itself but another aspect that i think plays into the sort of like pathway towards which a lot of i think you know males who struggle with um agp sort of deal with which is internalized misandry because you know if you if you're one of these you know because like a, a lot of the um you know males who transition are kind of left of center they're kind of your more feminist sensitive um men and they sort of grow up in these feminist circles and a lot of them you know it's i don't think it's a surprise that a lot of the bread tube almost every like male bread tuber has like not non-binary or transition or something because there's this sort of like internalization of the messages from pop feminism men are trash you know check your privilege you have male privilege and it's and so and especially if you're you know white and straight like you are you're, you're at the, the pinnacle of the oppressor pyramid. You're like the most evil person on the entire planet because you're cis, straight, white, male. Yeah. And so I think there's a desire to sort of identify out of that oppression. So you might still be, um, you know, white, but hey, now you're a lesbian. Now you're uh, not no longer cis and you're not even male because now you're like, you know, you're, yeah. you're trans feminine or whatever. So I think that sort of, um, and, th- and that plugs you immediately into this decades long, like, you know, rights, you know, we're on the right side of history, this activist, you know, yeah. libera- liberatory struggle. So I think if there wasn't that sort of liberation movement based on internalized misandry, um, I, I, I think, you know, there, the the rate at which people dealt with these AGP feelings through the adoption of a trans identity would be different. They would just sort of, you know, cope with it in a different way. Oh, okay, yeah. I this uh, the phrase or the term uh, internalized phobia. Androgyny, whatever. Uh, I'm always kind of like wary of it um, because it can be kind of like a social justice term or like a term used to uh, control other people, especially when people accuse other people of like, oh, that's just your internalized misandry. Or you, you see it a lot in the feminist circles where if a woman disagrees with the prevailing wisdom of the feminist movement, then they're saying like the only reason you could possibly disagree with all these other women is that you you hate women on the inside. So it can be used as um, in not good faith, which is for everything. But I just I'm always wary of that term. But I do I have seen in my interviews with uh, males who have attempted transition and backed out of it are detrans males. Um, there's a pattern, the ones at least I've spoken to, and that is, uh, you know, that's the bias of, uh, what's, what's that one scientific term? Like, a, not confirmation bias, but it's just, I'm only going to speak to a certain type of person because uh, yeah, just the, I, the I sample, sometimes talk- sampling yeah, bias, yeah. but um that they are, th- th- there is a propensity for sensitivity. And there is a, not only is there 
insofar as they claim or uh, identify with the AGP label and, and the way that that classification, um, that sexuality, there's there's a desire for the feminine and there's a dread of the male. Like there's not just a desire for women. There's also like a a deep discomfort with maleness. And sometimes it has to do with the father figure. Sometimes it has to do with, they see in the world that men are depicted as the aggressor and they want to flee from that. There's all these other triggers going on. It's not just, I want to uh, colonize femininity it's i want to escape masculinity too there's something about right. that i'm wondering in your if you want to go here um you, you kind of open up about your sexuality it's very personal but like what is your relationship to manhood and how was that a part of your transition and how have like over the course of your detransition have you incorporated or integrated manhood back into your life to your identity yeah that's a it's a good question and you know i'm like definitely sensitive to your like uh sort of um reaction to that term and internalized meandry because because yeah it kind of fits into like the standard lingo but but, yeah i I think it's just a like a buzzword for like yeah like you said like a dislike of masculinity a dislike of your maleness and, and that's sort of like and yeah i don't think i grew up with this like overbearing rejection of masculinity but i sort of sort of resonated with this idea that was popular in like intellectual academic liberal progressive circles which is that you know um (laughs) yeah that like men are sort of the root of the problem. So it's like, if I had an identity at all, it wasn't necessarily as like a man per se. It was like, as a human, I was sort of, I would sort of like have a more generalizable, like, yeah, I'm just like the, like a human. I'm like, you know, I sort of like have every other identity label, except like a positive conception of myself as a man. And also growing up because I was more of a bookish intellectual type, I sort of had trouble relating to your sort of like, you know, typical blue collar masculine men. And in that sense, I felt sort of alienated from you know, the sort of like stereotypical traditional masculinity. And, you know, I was a metalhead. I had long hair. I had like my ears pierced. I, um, you know, sort of like slightly resonated with, you know, terms like metrosexual. I cared about like my hygiene. I, I sort of like, oh, okay. I sort of, I sort of like, um, not a Hesher, you know, but a, uh, Metro Hesher. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it was sort of like, I, I, I don't think I developed a healthy appreciation for men. I always sort of, um, you know, wanted to ingratiate myself with the feminist. Um, I was in like, you know, philosophy departments and, and like academia. So, you know, I wanted, and when you are in those sorts of environments, you're not really supposed to talk 
in terms of positive conceptions of masculinity because hashtag toxic masculinity is sort of, and they always say like, well, not all men, you know, but they sort of did mean like all men. <laughs> so it's that sort of the implicit read between the lines, yeah. like context in terms of like, there's something inherent to men, manhood and maleness that is just like permeating from, you know, and, and so the job of a good man is to constantly uh, recognize how toxic or, or it's the, the job of a good man is to, is to be conscious and critical of your potential to be toxic. That's like where you're disrupted. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, And then to answer your second part of the question about, you know, since I've detransitioned, like developing, um, you know, not just like a acceptance of the biological reality that I am male, which is something I definitely flirted with rejecting in a sort of like postmodern deconstructive way of like, well, you know, like what does male and female really mean? You know, in a sort of Judith Butler sort of way, but sort of not just like accepting that I'm male, but like appreciating it, enjoying it, like embracing it and, and the corresponding, you know, concepts of manhood and, and trying to learn like, what is it to be, you know, not just a man, but a good husband, because I met my wife when I was transitioned. And so we got married as, you know, two wives. (laughs) Well, now I'm like a husband. So it's like, what does it mean to be a good husband? And, you know, in recently I've come to sort of, um, you know, really, uh, I guess in the evangelical term would be rededicate myself. Cause I, you know, I raised Christian, you know, I just got saved a long time ago, but I sort of like rededicated myself to, you know, um, to, to, to Jesus and to that. And that sort of religious, religious biblical conception of, you know, manhood and the, the role of the husband to be self-sacrificial to the wife has really sort of given me a positive conception that's not just relative to the arbitrary cultural whims of society but is sort of grounding that gender role in something that i now perceive to be a objective moral obligation and not just something i'm like you know, oh yeah, I, I just—it's—it's it's not, it's not coming out of my own whims and desires, but now I perceive that to be a moral obligation, yeah, and yeah. the failure to live up to that moral obligation is to me a very serious thing. Whereas previously, I never really took stuff like that seriously. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Gender is a social contract as opposed to uh, construct. Um, my, I was on vacation with uh, my dad. Well, my, my family and my mom and dad came uh, along and, and my dad was hanging out with uh, my stepsons. And uh, they took him out and then they came back and, and one of my stepsons said that my dad, my dad said that there's two kinds of history. There's the history of what happened and then there's the history of ideas. And uh, I guess like an interview such as this is a mixture of those two. But I'm really interested in your 
trajectory as an intellectual? Like, it sounds like you did philosophy, that he did grad work. So where did you start with this intellectual life? And what were you concentrating on? And what was your trajectory through the halls of the long, the, the longhouse <laughs> halls of academia? Yeah. Um, so I had, I have an undergraduate degree in interdisciplinary studies. Um, my concentrations were in philosophy and psychology, and I had a minor in cognitive science. And that was sort of what I was oh. always interested in was that sort of intersection between philosophy and psychology. Yeah. And then I got a master's degree in philosophy and I studied the continental tradition of like phenomenology. So I wrote like a master's thesis on like Martin Heidegger. So I was in that kind of continental phenomenological tradition where I really familiarized myself with, you know, that whole phenomenological tradition, like Foucault, Derrida, you know, all that sort of people, which was sort of provided fertile ground ground for, you know, when I eventually went, um, full blown, you know, postmodern, uh, during my, um, and then, so, so after the master's thesis, I was in a PhD program where it was a philosophy PhD program, but it was called the philosophy neuroscience psychology PhD program. So I studied, I took like neuroscience courses and stuff. And I was originally interested in, um, uh, consciousness studies. So that was sort of the, um, my main focus for so many years was like consciousness. That was like what I was obsessed with. But then in my fifth year of grad school, I uh, transitioned. And then suddenly I like switched from consciousness studies to now I want to write on the ethics of transgender healthcare because that's what I was obsessed with was transness. I just like transness took over my mind. So I started reading about feminism and gender studies and queer theory and like trans studies and trans feminism and like, you know, all these sort of like gendery topics. Um, and, but, but my interests have always been very interdisciplinary. Um, what's the phenomenology of transness? A lot of neuroticism, a lot of anxiety. (laughs) Really? Um, well, yeah, I mean, at least in my own personal experience, like, um, like, uh, yeah, especially those, those like early years, like just, you know, I'd say the predominant phenomenological theme of trans experience from what I can gather, not just in my own experience, but from like, just lots of research on this and talking to, and like reading, like literally thousands of like internet posts and just talking to people. It's like, it's, it's all about anxiety over passing. So, um, that, that's a sort of passing is the fundamental like motif. Um, and, uh, can you describe that in philosophical terms? Is there like either a metaphor or like something in the history of ideas that would be similar to this, this passing, like, like there, there's such a, I know you. I know the mechanics of it. Like you're trying to figure out like, is this male or not female? Am I going to be perceived by this or that? But like, just as an idea, like, like, is it this, it's like this idol, but it's not an idol. It's this moving idol. It's this amorphous, all consuming God. Something you're not. That's how I would describe it. It, 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 it's anxiety about wanting to deeply fundamentally be see, be something you know you're not 
and that generates anxiety. And then the more you achieve passability, the, the more it just heightens the potential anxiety of being found out because let's say you pass at the grocery store at the bank, you know, you sort of can, you know, uh, reasonably approximate, you know, whatever target gender you're trying to pass as well, the, the quote unquote cisgender target is still the gold standard because let's say you're on a date and you're passing do like what happens when you get to the bedroom? Have you had, you know, yeah. your surgeries and now you have to like, there's anxiety about, or well, when do I come out? When do I t- tell? And so there's sort of, and there's two sort of pathways. I think it won't, there's one instinct, which is like, I want to be as deep stealth as possible. And I want to, and it's just like a private medical thing in my past. And like, that's why people say like, I'm a trans, I'm, I'm a woman of trans experience and trans experience is just refers to this. Like, it's like a private medical condition. It's like, Oh yeah. I'm just like any other woman. I was just like born with this medical anomaly when I was like a baby. Okay. <laughs> and so there's, there's this instinct to sort of go deep, deep stealth, which always raises an anxiety of like, well, what happens when you just want to start a family um, you know, do you tell your partner? And so you sort of just push off the anxiety to like a future state. And then the, I think the other instinct is this sort of coming out of modern queer theory, which is to deconstruct cisgender as the gold standard to say, well, no, it's not the standard. We are our own standard. And which is why you have a lot of trans people who don't care about passing or say they don't care about passing because they'll say like, it's toxic. It's transphobic to elevate, you know, cisgender people as the target that you're trying to emulate. They say like, well, no, we're on an even normative playing field, which is why you have people like Julia Serrano coming up with these concepts like cisnormativity as a sort of like, like a it's like a bias it's like oh you, you're you're only you're just biased to think that you know cis people are the standard but if you if you correct your internalized transphobia then you will realize that you're on like equal playing field and the trans identity is equally valid to the cis identity but that's all good and well to talk like that but i feel like most trans people are kind of somewhere in, in between and they and it just kind of generates like perpetual anxiety yeah yeah and you are, by the act of transition, expressing a target. You are reifying that which, on an intellectual plane, you might be deconstructing. But like through the process of feminization, feminization is a is a target. It's a goal, and and you have to actually intense, intensely, intentionally reify it and play it out and act it out and make it second nature to you right like the way that you you move your hands the way you walk through a room the way your voice acts the way you hold yourself uh what what is that assembled out of other than sex yeah well this is where the sort of rubber hits the road with these sort of like abstract judith butler type conceptions of sex and gender where they want to like say sex is just as constructed as gender and it's all arbitrary and it's all just drag. We're all just doing drag. Like, you know, cis people are doing drag, trans people are doing drag. We're all, life is drag. And I think that sort of, 
you know, <laughs> I just, I, I think people sort of want that they want that to be true because it eliminates the anxiety that comes with passing. And, you know, there, I think there are some, you know, I think there's definitely trans people who are not as anxious about all this stuff and sort of are able to sort of, you know, integrate these anxieties into, you know, like such that they eventually kind of, the anxiety settles a little bit and they're, they're able to stop thinking about gender all, all, all the time. And their expressions are a little more authentic. Um, but I think with trans women, like, I mean, this is a classic gender critical critique is that it, it, it's an artifice. It's constructed, like, just like, you know, like voice training, for example, you kind of have to impose an artifice of like, um, like, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's like, you sort of, I mean, in, in my own case, I, I studied femininity to emulate it. Like I, I was like a, like a bird watcher studying birds. Okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, it's very like intentional. Like I'm going to emulate this, you know, I'm going to change my voice. I'm going to like, um, you know, and, and it is very intentional and constructed. And I think for some, not for all, you know, for some, I think the more like homosexual, transsexual types, this sort of femininity comes natural and it's not as artificial. It's not as put on. Um, and, but there are some trans women who don't do any effort to put on the artifice. Um, they just sort of like adopt the entity or the identity, but they don't sort of attempt to change anything else um yeah we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become senwa saga Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, uh, in your intellectual life, you switched from consciousness studies to transmedical care. What was your thesis, or did you end up uh, getting a thesis, or, or like what? what no, were you doing? I ended what, up was it activism dropping kind of out stuff, in my in my sixth year. Um, my, my 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 thesis was I was trying to defend a radical informed consent model of trans healthcare. Huh. So, um, which, you know, I never was able to, um, develop a philosophically sound argument to support that view because my professors to their credit, you know, would always push back with, you know, counterexamples to that model. They would say like, well, if you have a truly radically informed consent model, you know, what if someone just like wakes up one day and like, you know, like yesterday they don't have a desire for bottom surgery. And then like the next day they wake up and suddenly they want bottom surgery. Should they be allowed to just waltz into the surgeon's office and say like, I demand this, give it to me. And then the surgeon does it because they signed the paperwork and they're not in a clearly psychotic state or whatever. And the objection that I had was like, 
Well, that's not practical because in reality, there's waiting lists and the waiting list, because there's like backups, you know, you sort of have like two years to, you know, go through the waiting list process and sort of like the practical um, limitations of this health system sort of like put in check and balance in terms of like, you know, but yeah, but they would say like, well, no, this is philosophy. You can't just rely on like the pragmatics, (laughs) you know, you have to like bite the bullet and like, are you really going to say that if you wake up one day and let's assume there's like a gender surgery on every block and there's no waiting list, like, would you really like, you know, say like, yeah, today I want to get a bottom surgery. I'm just going to walk into the surgeon and, and get it. And that seems un- unintuitive. So you have to have some gatekeeping. And then the question is like, okay, well, if you're going to put in some gatekeeping, like what is the criteria to judge someone is truly trans and the only solution i could ever come up with was not any sort of like principled philosophical criterion of like who's true trans and who's not true trans but it was like you really my solution was just like we need more better therapists but that's not a philosophical conclusion that's just a pragmatics of like we need a better healthcare system but that's not philosophy so eventually i gave up on the thesis and i couldn't defend it and the project sort of fell apart and I ended up like dropping out anyway. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Is there like in the meantime, have you played with ideas? Has it come to you? Eureka moment? Like, Oh, this is how there's a philosophically sound argument for transness or trans medicalization, or did it go the other way? And like, you're like, there's actually nothing. There's no there there. Like on a philosophical level, I'm leaning more towards there's no there there. Um, I mean, I think it, it depends on what what there there we're talking about because if the question is, are there people who genuinely suffer from this desire to you know cut off their genitals? Yes, there are some people who have this intense desire for that. But whether that makes you true trans, because a lot of people try and like come up with these, you know, distinctions like, oh, well, if you're AGP and you have a paraphilia and that paraphilia makes you want to cut off your genitals and then you're not true trans. But if you're of the homosexual type and you have that same desire, then you're true trans. Well, I think that's arbitrary. And then, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, if the desire manifests when you're like three years old, then it's real. Well, I think that's also arbitrary because why is, it, it, if the desire manifests when you're three, but if it manifests when you're 15, like is 15 no longer too trans? Like where, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Um, and then and is that, like, if you talk about three-year-old, are you like, like in what decade is this three-year-old existing? Like 1890s or 1990s right. or 2020s? Because right. 2020s, yeah, you're, you're on, you are trans, but there's also a history, a historical point of view for this. Did you investigate that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I used to buy into the idea that, you know, like, like oh, the, the like common activist line is like, you know, trans people have always existed and you know, we've always been here. We just didn't call it trans, but I sort of, you know, I think we have to sort of distinguish between also the the male population and the female population, because I think the underlying paraphilic, I think there's good reason to think these underlying paraphilic desires, you know, that constitute AGP 
have some sort of innate disposition. I don't think, I think it's always a combination of nature and nurture, but if we're talking about the young female population and the manifestations they have for these desires, I think they're much more amenable to cultural influences. Um, so we have to sort of like really tease out like the finer distinctions of which like demographic we're talking about, like, you know, young females who are having maybe like RGD or versus like, you know, young AGPs who have these intrinsic, you know, paraphilic motivations versus like, you know, uh, the homosexuals who, you know, in another decade, they would just be like, you know, flamboyant, you know, like yeah. gay men or something like, so I think we have to sort of tease apart all, all these things, but I'm very skeptical that there's like a way to define true trans. And at this point, I basically say like, the only consistent definition of someone who's trans is do you self-consciously choose the term trans and apply it to yourself? Um, I will say like, well, yeah, they're just trenders. What they, you know, trenders are part of the trans phenomenon these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Is there, so I guess the philosophical tact would to, well, I don't know. You're the philosopher. I'm not a philosopher. So, but I'm just thinking like this transsexual. It's no, there's no such thing as a transsexual anymore. They, nobody calls it transsexual anymore, even though it's implied. Transgender is the accepted term because English has a problem with the word sex and sexual because it's got two meanings. Uh, well, it's got one meaning that just associates itself with these other biological factors. But it, there's also this transhumanism stuff. And I think that that, I think some of the work that James Lindsay has done around um, popularizing the idea that there's this, there's this historical force called Gnosticism and Hermeticism, and it pops up over and over and over again. And I know these are all technical terms. I'm going to butcher them by saying that there is a Luciferian urge in modern Western man to put his will above everything else. And with technology and science becomes more and more, man becomes more and more capable of telling the world what to do, telling his body what to do and, and transcending his flesh through an act of will and technology. Uh, so that would be like the philosophical slash narrative mode of understanding what is fueling it as a sociological phenomenon. And, and to understand it first and foremost, and then to, to admit, I think we have to admit that with technology being where it's at, medical technology being where it's at, people are going to be transitioning into dragons. They're going to be transitioning into robots. They're going to be transitioning into anything that they want to do. It's going to happen. We can't really stop it because the technology is going to be there. We can regulate it. We can make opprobriums on it on a social, social level. We can push back against it, but we have to admit that it's here. It's here to stay, especially the D-trans uh, cohort. Like society's going to have to reintegrate or allow for passive reintegration of the male to the female to the male and the female to the male to the female. Uh, and, and where these medically altered gender humans are going to be accepted, embraced, and then understood. So, uh, I'm wondering, I guess I forgot the question that something flashed on my screen that distracted me, but um, there's got to be a well, I think that's phenomenological, like, phenomenologically speaking, or like, I just, could you just respond to that phenomenologically, yeah, blah, totally. blah, blah, whatever. This is Go for like, it. so 
Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but you know, during my trans activist days, I actually wrote a book on trans feminism. There's a collection of essays, and one of my essays was on transhumanism and biohacking as like the future trajectory yeah. of like I wrote this back in like you know, 20, 2018. And like, yes, and I think the availability of these technologies is part and parcel of the like um social construction of the category of transness because but if we just sort of like roll back the you know the 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 historical tape and we postulate another world where you know synthetic hormones and these gender technologies of surgery were never invented i do not think we would see the demographic explosion of transness i feel like like having the possibility of the synthetic hormones as a, like, once you see that, Hey, it's possible for me to take these hormones. I think that can create desires that otherwise would not there. It's not, I don't think we are necessarily born with a desire to take hormones, but the <laughs> technology of the hormones, like once you see that it's a possibility that creates a possibility model. And now that you have the possibility model, it creates a desire in response to that possibility model. So, you know, these, these technologies like, um, and then there's a great book by this, um, a trans masculine person named Paul Preciado, who wrote a book called Testo Junkie. And um, prior to uh, him adopting a trans male identity, trans man identity, he was just like uh, a journalist who identified as like a lesbian or something, you know, used, you know, she, her pronouns or whatever, like just a woman. And she started uh, DIY experimenting with testosterone as a sort of like um, phenomenological DIY, you know, sort of like postmodern experiment essentially. And the experimentation with testosterone induced the development of a transmasculine identity. And she sort of admits that that is like the causal <laughs> origins of the identity. She, she, he, he didn't later say like, yeah, this identity was like buried in my soul from like age one. And it just got like revealed through this process of experimentation. The experimentation created the identity out of what otherwise was not there. And so now that we have, you know, you know, you know, and I think, you know, TikTok, like the TikTok surgeon, TikTok gender surgeon, and like, you know, top surgeries for everyone, like, you know, change. And, And I think this is where, yeah, like that, that sort of Gnostic religious impulse of like, you know, which, which to me gets into the very like culty sort of new religious movement vibes where it's like, discover your true, true self, change yeah. your life, you know, um, this will solve all your problems. It's like an infomercial essentially. And it's like, you know, do this one, this one crazy pill will change your life. It's like an internet ad. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything in your studies of uh, the continental school that could be helpful in studying this. I think that Foucault would not be far afield of uh, just using his framework around power and uh, how how these social attitudes, what, what what's feeding them, how, how it's proceeding. Do, do you think, like, okay, reframing. 
Where are you at now with this whole trans thing? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely like, I guess, gender critical adjacent. I certainly, so this is where it gets tricky because, you know, prior to very, very recently, I was, you know, I, you know, had, had a sort of like libertarian, you know, liberal impulse in regards to adult things. It was like, yeah, like adults can do whatever they want. Like, like you can go down to the liquor store of your own free volition and get yourself addicted to alcohol and destroy your life. And we let that be a legal thing to do. And similar with many other destructive tendencies, you can go, you know, gamble and ruin your life. We allowed adults to do that of their own free volition. Um, similarly, uh, you know, you can go to the gender store and like get yourself addicted to transition and destroy your life. And, you know, it's like, yeah, like, and my position was essentially, it's like elected cosmetic surgery, which is a separate question from whether it's medically necessary and whether it should be covered by insurance. Um, but you know, if it's like, you, you can also go to the plastic surgeon and surgically install whiskers in your face and call yourself a cat. That's like a, something we just allow in our free liberal society, which is a separate question from like, whether we want to, um, you know, allow pediatric transition given, you know, maybe they're not capable of giving free volitional consent due to like, you know, the problems of you know, informed consent. But yeah, once you get to a certain age, but now, um, particularly with my recent, you know, Christian convictions in regards to the fact that maybe there's something to natural law theory, maybe there's something to, you know, um, preserving <laughs> like a, a, a like a sort of you know order that is not subject to the Luciferian will as you described it, but you know something that is good and proper in maintaining like a more conservative order of things. Um, I've been much more amenable to a sort of critique of that liberal vision insofar as in my own personal life, I've seen that like the damage that that sort of like self-oriented desire had on my own marriage, because once I detransitioned, I sort of still had these AGP desires that I would sort of occasionally indulge in, but only in the confines of like my, my house, like sort of, you know, occasionally cross-dressing or, or whatever. And my, my wife was like supportive of this, but I sort of realized that, you know, this was causing a conflict between, you know, the health of my marriage and, um, and it's not like she like shamed me into this or she didn't like, you know, she was supportive. So this is like something I decided of like my own free will, but I realized that, you know, there was something good and proper in regards to sacrificing my own internal desires to try and integrate this AGP stuff into my male identity versus like sort of sacrificing the desire to give into that impulse and sort huh. of resist the the temptation and then using like, you know, my Christian faith as like a bolster to provide like a moral imperative to sort of prioritize my marriage as opposed to the prioritization of my self selfish desire to indulge in my AGP during like a private, you know, masturbatory like session or whatever. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It goes to the, goes to the heart of the, uh, it's a very prescient uh, reconsideration of liberalism uh, going on right now politically and uh, just online, I guess. It's like, uh, yeah, can we be in a free society? 
can like we're all adults so we should all be able to do what we want but we know that human nature such as it is will destroy that peace and destroy that uh, common the common domain where we expect a certain sort of behavior uh we expect limitations on behavior within the public sphere and, and the the private sphere uh without the controls of a morality that extends beyond that public sphere into the private sphere the private sphere is going to start to percolate more and more things that will pop out onto the public sphere and start to degenerate that respectable thing so we want a liberal society i don't want to tell you what to do i don't want you telling me what to do but if you start acting in your own self-interests, primarily, it's going to affect everybody around you. It's eventually going to affect the society. It's going to get into my kids, right? You know, like the whole thing, you're not just an island. So I guess it's just such a tricky wicket to, to thread. Um, and yet, if for it to be real, for it to actually be authentic, that is your... Uh, your nobility of soul, your nobility of spirit. It has to come from your own lessons. You have to learn the lesson that this behavior that I indulge in is putting myself first and is in fact leading me further and further away from connection, let's just say. And if I put, if I sacrifice that, if I sacrifice myself in that way, I actually benefit from being closer to my wife, let's just say what you're saying. And then, but that trickles out of your house, like your connection with your wife, as you work on that makes you more noble. And then you start to project that energy, I guess you could say, through all of your actions, through all your deeds. And then plus like the, the benefits are, spill out of just your own private life into the public sphere and stuff like that. But you had to go through that. We have to go through that. We have to allow other people to go through that themselves. Right. Yeah, you know, I think that's absolutely right. Like this, this isn't something you can like, you can't imp like like humans cannot impose that on other humans necessarily. Like I wouldn't want, you know, like if I you know derive my moral vision for what's good from you know the Christian worldview, I wouldn't want a another religious worldview to gain political power and then impose that via force, which is why I do sort of think that liberalism as a political mechanism is good, given that we live in a fundamentally pluralistic society with all these competing worldviews. And so I think the job of, you know, the Christian is not necessarily to impose the conservative order via force, yeah. but to sort of live a Christ-like life to live a good life. And then, you know, at least according to the Bible, like the Holy Spirit has to draw you into this life. It, it, you have to sort of see, see it from your own eyes. Like, like just saying like, Oh, you're, you're a sinner or you're wrong or you're living like a decadent lifestyle. Like, like just having another human tell you that like, that's not going to convince anyone. So you have to kind of be the change you want to see and sort of, you know, and this is where I think, you know, learning the lessons of, of, you know, the Bible in terms of like, you know, judge, judge, not lest you be judged. You have to actually, you can't just run around like saying like decadent lifestyle, decadent lifestyle, sinner, sinner, sinner. Like you have to sort of like 
you know, I, I think you have to just like live a good life, be a good person, show love and kindness to people. And then if they see that and if they come to their dark night of the soul, you know, people will get drawn to that if that's like the will of God. Otherwise, I think we do have to allow these liberal mechanisms because I wouldn't want, you know, someone to impose Sharia law or something like on my, you know, world, worldview, which is why I think we do need liber liberalism. But I think, you know, it, it's definitely a tough, tricky thing because, you know, we can sort of sort of see maybe like negative effects in, in the world. But I think the answer is always love and not sort of like judgment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I thought of a, the back of my head was just chewing on this radical consent model. And it's, I, I figured out what it is. It's, it's fuck around, find out. That's radical consent. Like, yeah, do whatever you want and reap the, reap the consequences, right? That, that's the only yeah. form. That, that's, that's the most radical consent. It's like, you don't know, nobody knows. So you fuck around, you find out. But if you don't fuck around, you're never going to find out. And there's that great little, like, diagram that the guy does. Like, well, you can, if you fuck around this much, you'll find out that much. But if you don't fuck around at all, you won't find out anything, you know? So it's like the radical consent is uh, an unfolds first personally do you what do you do with um how have you gone through the process of uh i guess accepting responsibility for uh transition like i guess if you detransition you give up on that identity and then at some point you say well i did these things to my body um you have to deal with the, your own responsibility in that but also what are your thoughts on the people who facilitated this, the medical industry? What what are the thoughts and how would you propose or go along the lines of combating the, uh, or I don't know, challenging or uh, seeking more gatekeeping? Like, where are you at with regard to what you were, what you achieved through that and how available or not available it should be? Yeah. So I recognize that different detransitioners have a sort of different, philosophy about this and i think it's probably relative to the extent to which they were like you know physically harmed via medical malpractice like luckily i didn't have any surgeries so you know my ability to bounce back from the transition medicalization like i was just on hormones for eight years but you know once i stopped those you know um but nevertheless you know i'm <laughs> you know i'm it just got a fertility test back. It's like pretty much nothing's there. So I oh, like that. Okay. I have to accept accept the responsibility yeah. of you know possibly being permanently sterile. Um, but and I know some some detransitioners, you know, and I think it's their prerogative to do this. You know, sort of you know put the the blame on you know the medical doctors who should have known better. And but for me personally in terms of just moving forward and dealing with it, I accept some amount of accountability. Um, I have to own that decision. I did that. I was not a child. Um, I was 28 years old. I was an adult. I wasn't psychotic. I wasn't like, you know, I didn't have any, you know, radically false beliefs. I read the informed consent model. I knew that there was like these health consequences, um, which I also suffered. I had a pulmonary embolism from the estrogen <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, what, what is that? Know, How did that affect you? 
Uh, so the oral estrogen impacts um, your liver and it also um, has a tendency to make um, basically deep vein thrombosis more likely. And I had a history of smoking at the time. So the combination of oral estrogen plus the history of smoking led to a pulmonary embolism. Um, also the oral estrogen led to increased triglycerides, which gave me a form of pancreatitis. So I went to the hospital for pancreatitis and in the hospital, I had a pulmonary embolism. Luckily I was in the hospital. Otherwise, you know, I could have like had, I could have died, you know, pulmonary embolism is like a big, big deal. It's very serious. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't recommend the oral form of estrogen because it has to be processed by the liver, which has like many, uh, bad side effects. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, going back to the accountability thing, like there was certainly an element in which the cultural zeitgeist, like my therapist at the time I was talking about my cross-dressing and, and, and she was like, you know, oh, you should go watch this, like uh, story, this interview with Caitlyn Jenner, your story sounds just like hers. Like maybe you're trans and it's like, you know, and also, you know, going on my internet research, like, you know, I, um, typed in, you know, it's, it's sort of like the classic question. A lot of like AGP trans women ask themselves like, is it just a fetish? You see like, you know, that's, that's the most common question that AGPs have before they start th their transition. It's just, just a fetish. You go on Reddit and you type in, you know, the keywords to search for these narratives about, you know, why do I have a euphoria boner? <laughs> and they'll like to say like, that's normal. That's expected. You don't have AGP. That, that's a debunked transphobic pseudoscience. Like, you're, you're just like, you know, you, you like, you know, regular women experience this too. No big deal. So you kind of, you know, there, there's a whole entire cottage industry on the online trans world that basically says, you know, it's not a fetish. This is normal. You are really a trans woman. No cis push person would ever have these thoughts. So therefore you must be trans. Um, and, and like, you know, and yeah, I, I could sit here and like blame all that, but ultimately of my own free will, I made a decision and, um, you know, I, I take ownership for that, but in terms of preventing other people from being harmed, I think for one, ed educating people about AGP and like trying to get people to realize that like, no, it's not transphobic to talk about AGP, um, you know, because if I had a proper understanding of what was really going on, like when, when I read Phil Illy's book, actually, I, I saw your interview with him, um, like kind of right uh, around the time I detransitioned. I was like revelatory. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like what's really going on with my life. Because um, oh. I kind of knew about AGP, but I always thought it was a debunked pseudoscientific transphobic theory until I read Phil Illy and I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually the real thing that's happening. Um, and now I see more and more sort of um, people who are, you know, even like trans identified and like, you know, also AGP identified and, and recognizing, I think that knowledge and education is like the first step to making truly informed decisions. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess like the the other counter to that fuck around find out is actually to uh, educate yourself. You do it. You either do it yourself or or um, you do the semi smart thing. You look around what what other, what's happened to other people, and so putting out those uh, stories is uh, the only 
way I know how to uh, facilitate um, the changing of this uh, zeitgeist uh, through interviews with you and, and Ellie and, and other detransitioners. What was, what was the, you, what, no, sorry. I was going to say, I think the problem with like trying to ed educate people though, is that I think this is the problem with the informed consent model is that it doesn't matter how much you educate people, like the heart, the human will wants what it wants and it will stop at nothing to get it. You can read a 10 page essay about all the negative effects of hormones and if that's what you want, you're just going to, it's going to go through one ear and out the other. You can have your doctor lecture, lecture yeah. you extensively on how you're going to increase your risk for like, you know, heart attack or whatever. It doesn't matter. That's what you want. Because I think AGP, I, I've come to realize this and recently, but AGP has an addictive obsessive component such that once you start dipping your toes, it's like a snowball it escalates. And once you get, it's like, you know, it's like trying to educate a heroin addict about the dangers of heroin. <laughs> like it just kind of doesn't matter that the will, the the human desire sort of overpowers everything. And like, um, and once you kind of get it in, in your mind, you'll destroy your marriage. You'll, you know, put your career at risk. You'll put your health at risk because you just want this so bad and nothing will stop you. Um, so I, I kind of worry that informed consent is kind of like, uh, um, it, it's just sort of going through the motions, which is what a lot of trans activists say. It was like, well, yeah, like it's just going through the motions, but it's not really doing anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So un unless you're willing to just like ban it outright, like I'm not sure how much we can do except changing the larger cultural zeitgeist about the contagion aspect of this thing, which I feel like, you know, your channel and like that, that's sort of like, you know, these sort of cultural reprogramming and kind of providing alternative narratives um, is the more like useful thing rather than thinking we're going to solve this with like policy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's got, it's, it's a big thing. I mean, Policy with regards to child medical transition is absolutely yeah, necessary, that, or at least the levers true. of accountability to those who participate in that yeah. practice of sterilizing yeah. a generation of children under the uh, idea that they're not what they are. Uh, so we get to change them. That's the other Luciferian thing. It's like the Frankensteinian thing. It's like these, <laughs> those, that's another thing, like why people are wanting to do this uh, to other people. Um, a big question. What was it that changed your path? Uh, there, what was the back again? Um, first and foremost, it was like a health related, um, but kind of step, step, stepping back a little bit. So, um, my wife and I had someone close to us, like a close friend, and this person um, was trans masculine identifying and, you know, um, there was some political stuff happening in, in our state in regards to, you know, um, sort of trying to put in, you know, gatekeeping, gatekeeping measures and blah, blah, blah. And um, so this person who is trans, trans masculine, you know, 
wanted to get, you know, surgery and hormones. And also they had like their, their, their children were also trans and non-binary and their like <laughs> friends were all trans and non-binary with trans kids. And so it's like, so, and, and this activism was very important to them. So they wanted, they were pressuring my wife to, you know, get involved in this activism, you know, go testify at the state house, blah, blah, blah. And so, but at the time, due to this person's like obsession with all things trans, we had, it led to a falling out of the relationship. And so, but my wife, um, she, uh, she was like, well, you want me to do research on this pediatric kids thing? Well, I'm before I start doing activism, I'm going to figure out what I really think about this. I'm actually going to do my research. So she started exposing herself to, you know, things like Ginspect and gender wider lens and like, you know, gender critical narratives and sort of really like looking at not just like the trans activist echo chamber, but looking at the full spectrum of information, you know, including like your channel and stuff. And um, so when she started watching this, I sort of started listening to some of this. I started listening to deep transition narratives for the first time. And it wasn't for the first time, it wasn't like some remote hypothetical. It was like, it it created a possibility model of like, wow, this is something I could actually do. It had genuinely never occurred to me (laughs) that like detransition was like an option. I was like, well, I guess I'm stuck in this. And it's not not like I was, it wasn't like miserable, but also I was tired of being a medical patient and um, I was tired of um, being abnormal. Like I really craved being normal because I, I didn't pass out like a a a a hundred percent. I blended it blended in reasonably well, which is maybe hard to imagine <laughs> from uh, this um, this you know how how I look now. But yeah. you know, I I, blend, I blended it reasonably well, but I still always stuck out, and I always had all this anxiety about passing. Just like I wanted to blend into a crowd and not be the person who stands out in, in, in the crowd. I wanted to be normal. Um, and so the combination of like watching detransition stories, exposing myself to gen- gender critical beliefs, sort of like having an ideological worldview shift in regards to transness itself. Um, so the health stuff, the, the gender ideology shift, being skeptical of gender ideology, um, you know, wanting to be normal, you know, like the fact that, I didn't want to be on these drugs for the rest of my life. I didn't want to go to the doctor's office every three months to get my blood work done for the rest of my life. I didn't want to be, I didn't want surgery. And if I wasn't going to get surgery, I'd had to be on this testosterone blocker for the rest of my life. And I just like, I wanted to be more natural and whole. So I actually medically detransitioned first. And then, you know, I started you know, getting more masculine. I was like, well, it's going to be hard to maintain this social identity. And I was just like tired of like shaving all the time and like putting all this effort into being feminine. I just wanted to be myself. I was tired of like putting on this like caricature essentially. Uh Um, And uh, yeah. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to fully, fully socially detransition. And, um, and the rest is history. That was like last summer. Um, Really? 2022? 2023. 2023. Three. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yes. Pretty recently. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, what was it like for you to 
come back online, testosteronally speaking? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I noticed was like increased physical vigor and vitality. Like I just felt, um, you know, and it was great because, you know, when I pre pre-transition, I've always been into like physical fitness and weightlifting and all these things. Um, then when I was, you know, identifying as trans, I sort of limited to the extent to which I engaged in that sort of like physical exercise because I didn't want to bulk up and make myself more masculine. So, but now, you know, but having the testosterone in me again, you know, I felt more vigor, more vitality, more energy, like at more at home in my body. And there's just like little things that it's, you kind of take for granted. But for example, people don't think about this, but a lot of trans women, they're, they're, they're trans trained voices that they do. They're very like kind of affected and dainty. Well, it's very hard to maintain that artificial trans trained voice and yell and scream to, to scream at the top of your lungs, your, your masculinization will come out when you elevate your, so for eight years, I never yelled. <laughs> so I never screamed. Um, and so it's like, I went to like a concert after I detransitioned, I was like, for the first time I was able to like yell and scream and not feel like, you know, this dysphoria about like my voice. It's just like little tiny oh, things like yeah. that, like fully embracing the whole range of like my voice not feeling like I, I have to keep my voice in a certain sort of like register and intonation and i can't dip into like the full range of like my expression and like you know how i carry myself um and just like finally losing that self-consciousness of like do i pass do i not pass do are people judging me are people looking at me can they tell can they not tell because i was one of those people where like I would kind of pass a lot until I opened my mouth. So I was always just like, I would get gendered female. I was like, well, now I don't want to open my mouth because then they're going to like get confused. And I was like, I just hated living in this like kind of ambiguous world. It's very frustrating psychologically. Um, huh. So that was like the biggest thing with detransition was like having a fully integrated personality such that I don't feel like this duality of like, you know, of self. Yeah. Um, how was, how was Christianity instrumental for you? So, I mean, this comes down to after I had detransitioned, um, you know, I, I still sort of had the, you know, the urge to occasionally cross-dress. Like the, the AGP didn't like go away just because I um, detransitioned. And for, the, and for the longest time, or, you know, when I first detransitioned, I was like, well, I'm, I mean, I, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and integrate this into my life, but I'm just going to like keep it very compartmentalized. So, you know, I'll have a sort of, you know, cross-dressing session, <laughs> um, you know, keep in mind this is a paraphilia, so it's sexual in nature. Yeah. Um, but, and then when the testosterone came back online, I became much more horny um, because so all these sort of like original testosterone driven paraphilic um, desires that originated my, my desire to, to transition in the first place kind of came back online. So now I was sort of living with this duality of like, you know, being trying to be a masculine husband, but feeling this conflict such that the, 
sexual energy I would pour into this AGP was sort of like taking away from yeah. my um, my uh, sex life with my wife. Like I, it was kind of like the more energy I poured into the AGP, the more it would take away from the intrinsic pleasure and my ability to self-sacrifice and like um, maximize the the goodness of my my sex life with my wife. So hmm. I eventually realized that, um, you know, and, and I, I, I visited my family over the holidays and, and my dad, you know, has, um, you know, been a Christian since he was my age. Um, so, so he uh, came to Jesus at like 20, at 35 and he was telling me about his his story, and he said, "Like, yeah, I had I had a terrible pornography addiction until I found Jesus." Um, and I was, and it's sort of like the the light bulb went off in my head. Like, well, yeah, I also have a, a sexual addiction to the indulgence of AGP, and so I kind of had this, you know, I guess a come to Jesus moment in terms of like, well, I'm going to dedicate my life to Christ, give it a shot. And, and I finally had a realization that I believed in sin as a metaphysical ethical category. Like my whole life as like a atheist skeptic, I never believed in sin as like a metaphysical reality. It was like, it's a very hedonistic philosophy of like, Oh yeah. Like if I have a desire, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, like, you know, how can it be bad? It's like, it's, it's, it's hedonistic. It's just self-pleasure and like no big deal. But I finally came to the acceptance that like, it was like in violation of my moral obligations to self-sacrifice for my wife. And so, and it's sort of been the only thing that's been able to, you know, keep me from, um, feeling this temptation to like live out, you know, to sort of in indulge in these like selfish desires, um, which was sort of revelatory to me because I had always sort of thought that like, there's nothing wrong with having like this selfish, um, you know, like he hedonistic, you know, if it feels good, it must be proper. Like, um, yeah. So that's kind of like the, the connection. And then once that came true, you know, I actually started reengaging with like, you know, like a spiritual life and developing like an actual spiritual life. Um, so. Is that working out for you? Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like um, I can, I mean, it, it's sort of, I think as an intellectual, as like an academic or someone who, you know, grew up in, you know, very atheistic academic environments, there's a certain amount of like intellectual embarrassment around using theological language that I'm still sort of like coming to terms with and getting used to. But, you know, I, I really do feel like, um, you know, putting trust in a higher moral authority that is, you know, God, that is Jesus Christ, and truly believe in that. Because prior yeah. to this, I, I'd always sort of had a kind of esoteric, metaphorical appreciation of the Christian story, but I never truly believed it. I never truly believed in the resurrection or any of these sort of like theological, you know, doctrines. It was like I, I was like, yeah, I like Christianity, but just minus all the doctrinal stuff. But 
it wasn't until I fully put faith and trust in, in the doctrines, in addition to doing like apologetics, you know, research in terms of the evidential basis for some of these things that sort of solidified my, you know, faith and reason for this sorts of stuff. And but I've genuinely seen it having a transformative effect on my ability to be a better husband and a better person and a better man. Um, so, and to me, that's all the proof I need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the fruits. Yeah. So, uh, I wanted to have you and your wife on and we decided to do it separately. Hopefully we get to do it together. Um, at some point, maybe I, it's just a hope of mine because, um, I want to understand what she went through because there's this phenomenon <laughs> called the trans widow, right? But she's like the reverse. She's a detrans widow. She married a woman. Well, she married a trans woman, or she married a man who's now a man. Like, like the must have been very rich um, material for for <laughs> couples discussion. I'm sure you guys had a lot to talk about. Probably like learned a lot about each other and yourselves by sharing this process of detransition. A lot of the detransitioners that I've spoken to do this really on their own. There's been a couple of, like, you're, I think you're the second married man to go through this process. Uh, so I don't want to talk about her. Uh, I hope to uh, have that discussion with you guys together. Um, but I, I don't know. Is there anything you want to say to that? Um, I, mean, um, I, mean, we, I can even imagine yeah, a man listening to this and thinking, well, I kind of do want to detransition, but my wife, you know, like there's the, that relationship aspect of that. And I wonder like if there's any insights or what you've learned or gained by going through that process together. Yeah. I mean, doing this with her, I think was critical, particularly insofar as there was an ideological shift and, having more gender critical oriented beliefs because, you know, going through that process of challenging tr trans ideology together was useful because if it had just been one of us, there would have been a reluctance to explore these beliefs because we were both pretty firmly enmeshed in like the trans queer social circles of progressive, you know, left of center, you know, political ideology. And so, you know, there's this constant looming threat of like, am I a bigot? Am I a transphobe? <laughs> and so like being able to explore these, you know, worldview shifts with someone um, while not necessarily having your partner be so quick to be like, oh, you must be a bad person. Like we, we had the freedom to explore this stuff together in a safe way where we could like challenge each other. And like, you know, maybe she would go more extreme on one, I'd, you know, one belief and then you would I'd push back or maybe I'd go more extreme, you know, and now it's like, I may be becoming more conservative and, you know, now with the whole Christian thing, like that's sort of like this thing, but we had sort of like a safe space to explore you know, differences of opinion um, outside of like, you know, what's politically correct in a way that, you know, and, and like, and having that partner to do that together with and have these conversations has been really critical to, I think, you know, this, this development. Whereas if I was just like, you know, in, embedded into like a social group that didn't allow that freedom of thought, I, you know, it would have been a lot harder. I probably would have, you know, never even like started 
exposing myself to gender critical stuff because that's it's like considered transphobic to even follow people who are deemed you know on on, on social media you're not, you're not even supposed to like follow there's like someone got like fired for like following Blair White on social media. I don't know if you remember that. Like, yeah. So it's just like, it's, you're supposed to, there's like ethical obligations to stay in your echo chamber. And so just having the freedom to explore, you know, and, and then that kind of has led to like a destabilization of many aspects of like my whole worldview, you know, like I started listening to like, um, you know, James Lindsay's work and, you know, um, not, and like challenging, you know, many other orthodoxies of the progressive woke world. So now it's sort of like my, my whole political worldview, like has shifted, not just on the trans question, but in many other dimensions. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's been really interesting. It's kind of curious how gender is like this linchpin that holds together so many like um, ideological beliefs and once you pull the linchpin on the trans question you start realizing like well what else might be you know totally wrong um yeah yeah what are you working on now where do you put your um, well, I, have a, I have a I have a YouTube channel, so I've been making videos on there um, since I started my detransition. So that's been like a fun little project. I have fun with that. You know, I talk a lot of. At first, it was more just like kind of personal autobiographical about my detransition, and then oh, 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 over time, I started you know being more openly critical of you know gender ideology and. Um, yeah. And, and now I'm sort of, you know, um, yeah, it, it's kind of like a platform for me to talk about whatever I'm interested in, which, you know, now that I'm <laughs> getting really into Christianity, like maybe okay. I'll shift gears once again. And, but I, I still, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of rich fertile crossover between like, you know, um, gender trans stuff and Christianity and, you know, lots of, you know, things to explore in that dimension. So I don't know. Um, and I'm on Twitter these days, you know? Um, so, uh, and I, I sometimes write probably ob obnoxiously long, uh, tweets on, on X, <laughs> um, cause I'm still a writer at heart and, you know, yeah. I kind of, you know, might might have a project in the, the works, um, that I'm working on like a longer form project. That's Do you feel more a book about, like, I, I've I've like wanted to write another book for so many years. It's just like my my interests keep changing. I can never stick to a single topic for long enough. But yeah. um, I I usually just I'm always writing about whatever I'm going through at the moment. So it depends on like if the thing I'm going through lasts long enough to like maintain my like my like persistent interest in writing on this topic. But I I've really been wanting to write a book on spirituality for a long time. So um, I. Have started working on something in that dimension um, huh. related to Christianity. So we'll see. Yeah. Spirituality is a uh, what does that even mean? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Um, having a uh, appreciation for the reality of the divine, the huh. appreciation for the fact that in my opinion, there's more to the world than just the purely physical material world of atoms and the void. Like there were not just meat machines, you know, who evolved according to, you know, random mechanistic natural causation, but that there's in some sense, 
a divine reality but you know with this sort of spiritual world we can always sort of gesture at it i don't think it's possible to like precisely define and propositional language and describe it like properties in the way we talk about the properties of like a rock or a tree because it's sort of to some extent always ineffable and and that in that respect i think mystical the mystical element comes in where we can only kind of say what it's not we know it's not finite it's not contingent it's not you know whatever we can say all these things that it's not but saying like what it is i think it's hard um, huh. yeah 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 it's tricky uh, you have to really um uh show it like between the gaps of explanation show it in your behavior it's behavioral connection in, in my right. estimation there's a there's a connection you can you tell people that foster that connection and how they behave that how they interact with things how they feel uh it's, it's evident that they're fostering connection with that um yeah so there's a reality yeah there's there too. yeah there's plenty of people who you know profess you know and said oh yeah i i i i i believe in christ but they don't show any evidence of acting that way and so i think yeah you have to if your belief in christ has zero effect on your behavior i would be doubtful the extent to which you truly have a belief in him um but, but that, that that's like a contentious theological debate i know sort of the traditional evangelical it's more about a profession of a belief and then once you have the you say the right thing you profess the right thing and then your sort of your soul is saved in the internal register of heaven and you know you sort of secure your place in the afterlife based on the profession of like a specific doc yeah. doctrinal proposition but yeah. i sort of definitely think that unless there's a manifestation of, like you said, like, you know, positive, you know, unless you're actually showing love and kindness in your life, like, you know, to what extent can you really be said to be a Christian? Um, which is not to say that the sort of like liberal Christianity is that Christianity is nothing but just like, you know, social programs and being kind to the poor. And like, you know, I, I think you can go too far in the like, Oh, it's just about doing good things because Jesus was just a good ethical teacher. It's like, you know, I think you can, you have to believe that he was who he said he was. Um, because I, you know, I think that sort of doctrinal belief that, you know, he truly was divine is important. Um, but I think it is a truly that true belief in his divinity is what leads to the transformation it's not just like, oh yeah, he was a good teacher. Like, yeah. so you have to kind of like, you know, uh, balance that out a little bit. Great stuff. Uh, you have a lot of writing to do and thinking to do, so you're not going to be uh, <laughs> shutting up anytime soon, I imagine. Yeah. 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 Um, this is a very like fertile time for me intellectually. I feel like I'm, got a million things I'm interested in. Um, cause yeah, I've just like, and you know, I've had people express to me that like, um, Oh, I went from one ideology to another ideology from one cult to another cult, you know, like this yeah. clearly shows, you know, like I'm not 
capable of grounding myself in any sort of like rational thought because, you know, I should just, um, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I, I sort of think everyone has an ideology. Everyone is like, you know, it's just a matter of being honest about what your worldview presuppositions are. Um, Ray Williams, where can people find your stuff? Just say it out loud. And I'll put links to all of your work in the description. Um, on YouTube and Twitter slash X, uh, Ray Alex Williams. If you search me on there, you will find me. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you, are you aiming? What's, what's 2024 looking for you? Like, what do you want to do? Do you have a goal? Um, I mean, I would love for my YouTube channel to get more popular. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know. I just sort of, uh, we'll see. I'm just, you know, um, just want to put more content out there and, you know, just um, kind of, I guess I'm engaged in quote unquote gender critical activism <laughs> these days. Yeah. But at the same time, I have a newfound, you know, religious conviction and, you know, I feel compelled to talk about that. Um, so maybe a combination of those two, um, you know, uh, goals, um, you know, to sort of share my faith more, but also to, you know, talk about, you know, things that I care about, which is clearly the harmful aspects of gender ideology and, you know, talking about detransition. And uh, so, yeah, those are kind of my, my two interests right now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating stuff. It's a lot there. I would be interested in a more phenomenological approach if you, if you ever ended up roping those ideas into uh, this topic. I think it would be fertile ground. Not a lot of people are operating on that philosophical level. It'd be nice to hear more like philosophical stuff uh, about uh, this idea of identity. Yeah, I, I do get pretty philosophical on my YouTube channel sometimes. Um, yeah. So, uh, but but yeah, I I I think um, I could pull together something from various Twitter th threads I've engaged in that are more on the theoretical side of things, and m maybe there's like a potential book project there as well. Um, so. Yeah. I'm not sure. So yeah. Well, cool. Keep keep at it. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'm gonna end the recording now. Give your wife my positive regard, and thank you very much for joining me. Yeah. Thanks, Benjamin. This is fantastic. Really enjoyed the conversation. So um, yeah, and I really appreciate your um, whole channel, like everything you do. Big fan. So um, cool. It's good to hear that. It helps me to keep doing it. <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely instrumental in my own like worldview shift and detransition itself. So yeah. like just listening to these stories like is, you know, uh, um, <laughs> you know, like it's almost like a social contagion of detransition itself, you know, f flipping the the switch a little bit on the sort of like um the the because I think it's it's about these possibility models, and like if you don't have a possibility model, that detransition is a thing that you can do and not have your life ruined. That there can be positivity on the other side of detransition, like um, yeah. you know. So yeah, definitely keep up the good work. Super appreciate it. Yeah, well, absolutely.